Hi, I'm Dr. Tamara Agnew. And I'm Dr. Stephanie Champion. And today we're interviewing Dr. Carolyn Crozer-Barlow. And she did a fascinating PhD interviewing high up members of the US military, post 9-11 and in Iraq. In this series of career sessions, all of our guests hold doctorates in their chosen field. And we invite them to talk about their pathway from PhD candidate to present day. We ask them what they've learned and we also ask them to give advice to people who might be thinking about a career in research when they've finished school or when they've finished their undergraduate degree. Welcome to Career Sessions with your hosts, Steph and Tamara, proudly sponsored by Inspiring South Australia. Okay, so today we are speaking to Dr. Caroline Crozer-Barlow, who graduated with her PhD in 2007 from the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Lancaster in England. The title of her thesis is The New Mm, speciality of security, um, operationalizing uncertainty and the US military in Iraq. Uh, her career has taken her around the world, but in 2012, she found her way back to Adelaide and into roles with the SA government. We're really excited to hear more about your journey. Thank you and welcome, Caroline. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, so we're going to start by setting the scene and where you are now, what is your role and what does your day look like? Well, it's a long way from, I guess, where I began. <laughs> um, so I'm currently the Executive Director of Early Years and Child Deve Development at the Department for Education here in South Australia. And my day looks like what it looks like when you're busy running a division of 600 people who kind of do things like we run the speeches and the OTs in schools, we do support for disability, uh, we do thinking about early learning and we do stuff on anti-bullying and attendance. And so we kind of do all of that child development and well-being part of the department. Not curriculum, the, the, no, the, the experience. Mm. Yeah, excellent. Okay. The enablers of learning is kind of what we talk about. Oh, okay. So were you a first-generation uh, university student, like in your family? Did your parents go to university? or? Yeah, I was talking to mum and dad about this. Uh, so no, my family, um, long line of university attendees uh, on my mother's side and my father's side, he and his brothers were the first ones in their families to um, go to university out of their parents. But I was talking to my dad about it because he did a bachelor's degree here in Adelaide and then he went over to America to do a master's in viticulture. And, of course, this is like the 70s and so he's over there and he's done his thesis and he'd spelt sulphur wrong. You know, like Americans <laughs> spell sulphur yeah, with a yeah. No, we spelt it right. Yeah, he <laughs> spelt it anyway. But, of course, in the days before word processing, oh. they said, oh, he had to resubmit his thesis. and like For that one. So he didn't. So he never got his master's. So oh. he has a bachelor's. <laughs> and then my mum has a number of degrees as well, which she did kind of when well, she had us as kids so she got a law degree when I was like 10. And anyway, so long line of lifelong learners, I think. University is a big part of your home life. Um, and did that influence you in deciding to go? Or was there ever a, a choice to go? Or was it just sort of assumed that you would go? Very to much assumed. Mm -hmm. Like I'm really, I'm really aware of how privileged I am and, and I have a really privileged background. So a strong expectation that we would go to university. And my parents really... They supported me at university. They supported mm. me to do my postgraduate study. I was lucky enough to study overseas. Um, and, yeah, and so it was really it was a really supportive environment. Mm. I think they kind of thought 
they didn't quite know what was going to happen or become of me. So they thought <laughs> university was a safe place for me to be while I worked out what I might want to do. Yep. Um, and then I think they got a little bit alarmed when I started studying all this stuff about defence and, and whatnot. But in the end, as you say, I came back to Adelaide and it all came good. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're pleased enough now. Uh, did you go to university straight after school? Yeah. yeah. And did you know what you wanted to study? No. So I went to the Australian National University where I was enrolled in a double degree in arts and law. I never finished my law degree. So a bit like my father, I kind of got nearly there and didn't quite do the thing. I mean, in those days, you know, things were easier now, in, uh, easier in terms of the government amount of money that mm. you would get for for study. You know, we actually had youth allowance at the time. Yeah. All of these things that, you know, <laughs> Back in the good old days. today, I sort of think, have none of those, have far fewer opportunities. Mm. So it was a really great opportunity to kind of find my way, muck around, learn lots of different things in mm. that kind of arts, history, politics space. What took you to... Canberra. Well, my big sister was living over in Canberra and working in the public service and uh, I was either wanting to go to Melbourne or, or Canberra, just wanted to kind of just go Just to be in a bigger else. city than Adelaide. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I followed my sister. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your undergraduate degree? So in the end, I think I graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in History. Mm-hmm. Okay, and did that, and was that the course that you were on for your? Did you do honours? I didn't didn't do honours. I was halfway through and I got sick, uh, like a like a chronic fatigue thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, and so then I was going to go back and enrol in honours, but instead I decided to enrol in a masters mm-hmm. at Lancaster University. Yeah. Okay, so you decided to find an even bigger city. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've been to Lancaster. Quite small. <laughs> <laughs> Very, very small. Right. Um, And so what was your master's? Well, so I enrolled in a master's in peace studies. I was really interested in kind of um, thinking about uh, international development, thinking about those kinds of issues. Um, And then when I got to Lancaster, um, uh, where there was a really great professor called Professor Mark Duffield who was working on those issues at the time, I realised that like the general cohort of people engaged in peace studies were not necessarily my kind of people (laughs) and like the boys were better looking in the defence studies (laughs) masters. It's a valid reason. I feel feel so bad. Mum, that's not why I changed. Anyway, (laughs) so I switched to my defence studies masters and actually I was really lucky. I got um, one of the professors working there, a guy called Professor Mick Dillon, is kind of a really seminal person in the critical um, security field. And he he was my master's thesis supervisor and he was who encouraged me to stay on and do my PhD. Ah, so at what point did the PhD become an option that was on the table for you? I really don't remember. So mm. like I'm just I'm I'm old enough for it to be long enough ago. <laughs> it's all a faded um, really don't. So it all just kind of merged into one. It really yeah. did. And I mean it didn't help like a, a you know, um my master's was uh there was a lot of social activity alongside the <laughs> master's activity. Yeah. So, yep. <laughs> yep. So um, when you did move into your PhD, so straight from master's to PhD and they sort of blurred, um, did you get to pick your own project? I did and it's another way in which I'm really conscious of of my enormous mm-hmm. privilege. So uh, 
part of being a, an international student and part of being a kind of self-funded international student is you get to choose where you want to go and yep. what, what your interests are. And so I recognise that that's like almost uh, unheard of. <laughs> and so I really did get to follow my own interests mm-hmm. and, and pursue what I was interested in learning about. So did you have a scholarship at all to study? No. no. So they were at that time, um, I think uh, there were scholarships available in terms of so like a lot of EU scholarships or so Erasmus scholarships and those mm. sorts of things. Mm. But I was really lucky. My parents were willing to support me mm. and I I sort of always felt a bit weird about getting scholarships if I could pay for it myself, which is a weird way of thinking about it. Um, so, yeah, so no. But it absolutely opened the field for what you could study but also who you could study with. Did you get to pick your supervisor? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was so it was Mick uh, Mick Dillon who asked me to stay and and do a PhD with him. So he was always going to be my supervisor. Mm-hmm. In terms of my second supervisor, so I was really privileged to have um, a man called Professor John Law, who was in a completely different field. He's a kind of actor network theory sociologist, mm-hmm. um, and really doing some incredibly interesting things at the time, and still is. Um, and he. I think he might have been a little bit reluctant to take on a defence and security studies PhD student. So he was working much more in thinking about um, public policy, how does public policy come together, but he was very patient and um, and so I talked to him a bit about the sorts of things I was interested in looking at and he was really, he got really interested in it and so I was really lucky to get two, two really great supervisors. So was there much of a uh, decision-making process going into your PhD or did you kind of, it was, it, it, did it just sort of fall into place or did you, was there any point where you went, no, nah, don't know if I want to do this? <laughs> so bits of it fell into place. So the kind of conceptual framework, the, the big things that I was interested in thinking about. So I was really interested in thinking about, I mean, it's hard to imagine, right? But it was 2005. So we just had 9-11. America had invaded Iraq and Afghanistan at the time. Things weren't going well. But they also weren't, like now, of course, we know they were just dreadful, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. at the time, there was kind of this lingering sense of self-assurance. In... That this was all going to be over soon mm-hmm. and that we were there was definitely going to be a winner and... All of that. And I think, you know, the people that I was working with were talking, were critical security theorists and were talking a lot about the incredible imperial violence that was being enacted and the complete disregard for um, for human life, mm. for um, for the agency of the Iraqi people, which was just in no way ever considered in any of yeah. the planning for the war. Um, and so, you know, there was some there were really interesting and live conversations. And what I was interested in doing, so there was a lot of kind of rhetorical and discursive analysis happening on this side. And at the same time, there was actually quite a large change in the way that the US military was conducting its war. Mm-hmm. It was the first really networked war. It was yep. a really information-led war. And I was kind of interested in understanding actually what that looked and felt like and how that was different from previous ways of operating war. So like really mm-hmm. kind of get under the hood, 
with a view, with a really kind of critical mindset to kind of thinking about how could you use that insight to drive changes or think about things a bit differently. Mm-hmm. And so so the theory, the kind of things I was interested in were there and really then it was just about finding the right field work. So for me that was the kind of lucky happenstance I fell into a bit. I met, you know, some people at a conference and they introduced me to some more people and in the way that you do I ended up spending a bit of time at Fort Hood in Texas, mm-hmm. which at that time uh, was not famous for the very sad thing that happened to it later. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, where 1st Cavalry Division were just back from their first tour in Baghdad. And I spent a bit of time talking to them about what they'd been doing over there. They were led by a guy called General Pete Corelli, who was one of the um, most forward-thinking US Army generals. And he was really, he was doing counterinsurgency. He was doing... Um, he was doing a more sophisticated and nuanced and thoughtful approach to conflict before, well before Petraeus was doing it in Afghanistan. So um, I had time to spend talking to him and talking to his people about what they were doing. And that kind of really rich interview experience, which I just fell into just by luck of being a person who got I couldn't even imagine to, how you would plan that. <laughs> you don't, right? You yeah. just don't. Mm-hmm. And I like, and I think back on it now and I think, gee, it would have been good if I'd had some training in like how to ask good interview questions <laughs> or like make sure that you well, get how, all the information. Well, were you received? Like were you like seen as an outsider who was coming in and, and questioning the US military or were they open and up to talking about look, what was happening? I think like there are lots of times in life where being a woman, even a, you know, a, a, a wealthy white woman, which has lots of advantages, but mm. lots of times where being a woman is a disadvantage. Yeah. This wasn't one of those times because I think there was something very non-threatening about yeah. me. Like I was really young. I was kind of curious and interested. Yeah. I had political views and strong views about about the invasion, which I was fine to share if someone asked me, but I didn't feel like I needed to walk around with a yeah. T-shirt on Same. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all murderers. That's yeah. right. And that's right. And I was just genuinely curious about what was going on for them and what yeah. had happened for them. And they'd all just come back from this conflict where, I mean, and this is the other enormous disconnect, when people deploy overseas into these conflicts and then they come back to their homes They've had this experience that is entirely separate and disconnected mm. from your ordinary life. And so people actually want to tell you about it and kind of want to talk about what for them was a professional craft in how they went about doing what they were doing. And so, no, I didn't have any problems with that. People just kind Excellent. of very open. <laughs> so was that, your, was, that, was that data collection? That, that was your data collection? That was my data collection. There were other bits and pieces I went and visited um, you know, Fourth uh, Infantry Fourth Infantry Division had had deployed um, after First Cav, and I went and visited them at their home in Fort Benning in Georgia. So they weren't there, but it was kind of the people left behind doing the support mm-hmm. stuff. I talked to them, mm-hmm. spoke to some people in the Department of Defence in Washington. You know, so I did other bits, but the really the core part that is the core of my thesis was based on those interviews. And so, how many people did you get to speak to? I, it's like, it is so long ago, I can't remember. <laughs> but I think probably about 15 mm-hmm. over that time. Like, I think, you know, it was at least a couple of people from every brigade. There's five brigades, you know, and then, yeah. so I think probably about 15. Yeah. So wow. just to put all of the work that you did into context, what was the research question you were trying to answer? I think I wanted to understand how an information-fed 
organization like the US military had clearly become operates in a really complex and messy world mm-hmm. and how they coped with um with the with the kind of mess of that world because you know organizations and bureaucracies which in one way the military is aren't terribly good at interfacing with messy worlds mm. um you know and tamara and i know each head. other <laughs> from a public service context and the yeah. public service is not always good at kind of understanding lived experience and thinking mm. about it and the military is like the very pointiest end of of that yeah and so it was trying to i think that's what i was interested in understanding is how how they made sense of it what the practical things that they did to make sense of it wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> i have to think a bit hard about what the next question yeah. will be we'll just we'll sit on the phd for a little bit longer but i do want to ask you about the value that the phd led to but first off like what were the the challenging aspects of your particular phd project so, I mean, definitely one of the challenges was working with subject matter that I find really um, troubling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think another challenge, and it's a challenge I was aware of at the time and I'm so much more aware of now, I mean, especially in this kind of Black Lives Matter moment, mm. is the complete silence and the complete absence of access to the other side of the story. Mm. So I had lots of really good visibility and access to the US military, to the UK military to a lesser extent, to the decision-making of the Western powers as it was. And I was reading a lot about that and there was a whole public discourse around that and the silence and the complete exclusion of Iraqi voices in that conversation is kind of like to me, I kind of look at my PhD and think, God, I was an arrogant little schmuck, wasn't I? <laughs> like I just kind of completely wrote this mm-hmm. thing with none of the other side. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's a practical part of that, didn't speak the language. There's a, but there is also, I think, a fundamental uh, challenge. A lot of the theory that I was working with was really founded from, even though it was framed as a critical theory, it was really founded from the premise of a kind of Western-centric perspective, which just The silences are becoming a bit more apparent, but obviously we've got a lot to learn still on on how to approach these sorts of research questions. Yeah. How did you keep going? Did you, I mean, it doesn't seem you had too many challenges other than than the, the... the physical challenges, I suppose, mm. of being, you know, in another country or mm. away. Um, so did you, was there ever time where you felt like you had to really, really it was soldier difficult on. to keep going? Or, or <laughs> yeah. was it, did, did you, was this process something that was pretty easy for you to kind of keep moving through? I mean, I don't think it was ever easy, uh, but mm. I think um, I did make a decision. So about two years in, I moved back to Australia and I got a job and I just, started doing it while I had my job. And I think that was probably the only reason I finished, to be honest. So I think, so I know a lot of people, a lot of my peers, a lot of my friends got to that third year and found it really Mm. hard to complete. Yeah. Um, And you think of all the work you've put into it, but that third year is a slog. It is. Um, Yeah, I was, about 50% of people who start PhDs don't complete um and I was really horrified when I heard that I'd think that might be discipline specific I don't know what it is it sounds very familiar and quite Um, quite redolent with the people that I went through yeah well and when you're doing a PhD you look around you and people it looks like they're dropping like flies they do um 
But yeah, so you soldiered on through the third year by working at by the getting same a job. time. Well, yeah, okay. and, though, and, and because the reason why that was the most useful thing to do mm. at the time was because it just like it just completely deprioritized it for me. Mm-hmm. So I was much less invested in it being perfect. Uh, I would take a step back and go just get it done. Just get it done. Yep. And I was also working in a field that was reasonably related to, to um, I was working in a strategic policy division in, in, um, in the Department of Defence in Canberra. And it was reasonably related in content, but I could see how none of the kind of critical security sociological theories that I was working with were of any interest at all to my bosses. None at all. (laughs) And so that was actually quite a useful kind of way of Mm -hmm. just being like, right, well, I'm just going to write what's in my head. I'm going to bring all these things together and put it down and then move on. And so that was what I did. Yeah, so it helps not to be right in it. It's almost mm. like you kind of you're, you're so in it that you can't see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. remember that feeling. Yeah. Yeah, and it didn't matter to me if it was if it was perfect or not because at that time I I wasn't thinking I wanted to be an academic, so. Right. <laughs> but it was clearly good enough to make a book out of. Oh, look, it's a pretty bespoke <laughs> and niche area of publication. Not many people do <laughs> the thing that I did, so I'm not at all surprised that someone was like, "Oh, she went and talked to someone actually in the military. We should put that one in a book." Do you think too many people actually did that? No. No, 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 no one. No. So there were people who were kind of like it really divided into two camps, the people who talked to the military and spoke back to the military in their own language mm-hmm. and the people who talked about the military and spoke back to each other in our critical security discourse language. Mm-hmm. And my book was trying to bridge those things. Uh, so, so it must have been, it's almost like uh, bringing people here today to talk about their PhD. When you talk to people, it's almost like that you've, you're interested. Hmm. So people are willing to talk. Yes. And that's a really useful thing, I mm. think, especially when you're trying to elicit, you know, pretty, it was, well, full-on information from people who have had mm. an experience that Absolutely. is pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I can see that. So was what was the most exciting thing about your PhD, do you think? I mean, there was nothing. There's nothing I would say was particularly exciting, I think. Oh, you were just in America interviewing the oh, tree no, during the Iraq War, but no, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it was like, I think the kind of like I look back now and the opportunity that the opportunity to spend time with people who were at the same point in their intellectual lives mm-hmm. and who were studying adjacent but not the same things to me, and to kind of have that camaraderie and that peer connection was incredible like that's you know like I just you know anyway Danielle <laughs> Louise Manav love you guys um yeah. but like there's just there's these people who you get to really really spend time with and learn kind of things from them and then also I mean I was really lucky I had a wonderful supervisor two wonderful supervisors in fact um and the opportunity to kind of I don't know engage with people who are so who have spent their whole lives thinking about this thing that you've just started kind of mm-hmm. poking around the edges on and for them to be curious about what you think, mm-hmm. wow, that's kind of incredible, <laughs> yeah. and then to kind of be able to engage in that back and forth with them, that's that's a real blessing and it's something I look for in my work now. You know, I always want to have a boss who wants to do that with me, but mm-hmm. to have the time, man, what an honour. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so... With your PhD, you obviously have a product because you have a book at the end. Um, but why was your research project important? Like, can you explain to people? In lay terms. Yeah, in lay terms. Um, 
for the population? Like, why is this an important question to investigate? What did we get out of it? Uh, I don't, I don't know that I would say it is important for the general population. (laughs) Controversially, I think. Uh, when I was reading it today, um, so this is why I have it out, uh, is because I had kind of forgotten about what I'd written because it was a long time ago. But when I was reading it today, I was the thing that was important for me as a as a person in the world is that um, really it helped me develop a way of looking at and thinking about the world. Mm. And I was surprised when I read it that in my method section it talks a lot about openness, um, curiosity about doubt, mm-hmm. uh, like one of the kind of critical things that's in my my thesis is about doubting the coherence of things. Like mm-hmm. people kind of assume that institutions kind of all run one way and everything is glunked They've together. They've got a in plan a, and that's <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. right. And that doubt, that kind of, and, and I mean doubt in a kind of not in a sceptical mean way but in a gentle, like actually mm-hmm. how do these things hang together mm-hmm. and what is the work that people are doing to make it hang together mm-hmm. and could we change some of that work so it hangs together slightly differently and starts to benefit different people? Just being a bit questioning. People. Don't just accept it at face value. I think that's right. So for me, that's what I have taken from it. Uh, what do I think society got out of it? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a skilled person who is yeah. now that's working right. in that's early right. years in child development. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. So has any of the people that you interviewed, have you um, given, given it back to them to have a look at? Such a good question. So I was trying to remember that. I know I, I published a few articles out of it uh, and I did send them the articles at the time and in particular, so General Corelli was working with a, a guy called Pat Michaelis who they co-authored some articles at the same time because they were quite sort of intellectual about what they were doing. And so I know he'd definitely seen some of it, but I don't know if I ever sent anyone the book. I mean, the book was like $115. I'm not going to send it to <laughs> They can have an e-version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. And, and I'd like to say my royalties came at $30 in total, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so perhaps you didn't make your, fu- your fortune out of it. No, I did not make my fortune out of it. I just want to uh, go back to just the PhD when you said you moved back to Australia and just your, your um, supervisors were still in the UK. Uh, so... We were in the time of email, so it made life a little bit easier. As previously, we've had a speaker talk about having to post oh, chapters. I <laughs> I'd never even thought about yeah. that. Yeah. So, how did you find that experience? Of were you? Did you feel alone at all by the time when you came back? Did you feel? Did you feel still feel that kind of nurture and support from your supervisors? I really did. Like I was really, really lucky <laughs> with my supervisors. Um, I did. I think. Also, and and it might be a function of the kind of PhD, like the kind of social sciences, uh, soft social sciences in which I was working, um, by the time you got to writing it, you were kind of, you sort of knew where you, you knew, were. Yeah. yeah. And it was the feedback and the kind of rigour and the challenge was much more in the gestation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then by the time we got to here, it was kind of yeah. either it was going to make it or it wasn't going to make it. Yeah. So it <laughs> was what you could do at a distance. That's right. Yeah. Probably would have been helpful, I think, if we'd been able to like Skype or something because I did, I flew back to the UK for my Viva, like mm. to do the oral defence. And um, <laughs> and I was talking about my, anyway, and I was like, oh, you know, and of course Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari, they talk a lot about assemblage and blah, blah, blah. And then the um, person on the other side of the Viva said, 
do you mean assemblage? And I realised, like, I've been pronouncing all these terms of art completely wrong because I'd only ever read them in a book and emailed my supervisor about them. So there would have been things I could have been saved from. But... Maybe you wouldn't have had to fly back to the to the UK. You could have done your Viva oh by Skype. God, wouldn't that have been amazing? <laughs> yes, that's true. That would have been good. It's very interesting hearing about the Viva. I had not realised that you had to. I certainly, I think I would have died. Um, if I had to sit in front of a panel of experts and justify my PhD. Yeah, it's kind of an intense experience. And I think uh, I was lucky, I think, because I knew most of my panellists by kind of like I'd been at conferences yep. with them and those sorts of things. See, that wouldn't have helped at all. That would have horrified me. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's my tip for it because it's the tip I use like in almost every part of my life is I kind of think like there's only so much time, so how much can they really ask you? And also people are much more interested in hearing about them than they are about you. And so I seem to recall talking quite a lot about their research and how it is. Oh, oh, that's where you will get you everywhere. <laughs> Very <laughs> good technique. <laughs> so how did you get from military to education? Uh, long journey. Uh, so uh, mostly by stint of a real interest in public policy. So mm-hmm. I came back to Australia. I was working in defence, uh, did a fair bit of time there. I spent a little bit of time lecturing at UNSW at ABFA in Canberra as well. And then I had my baby in as part of the usual South Australian emigration program. I came back to my hometown <laughs> with my baby to take care of the free babysitting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks, um, <laughs> Mum and Dad. Um, so, uh, so we moved back and then and I was really lucky to win a role at, at the Department of Premier and Cabinet in South Australia. And then since then I've just hopped around in public service roles. And I think, you know, until literally until today when I had reread my thesis, I sort of thought that it was a thing that I did back then that had been really useful in terms of establishing for people that I was capable of thinking about something for a long period of time and kind of pulling together a coherent thing, but that it probably wasn't terribly relevant to my life. But actually, I think it probably has framed the way that I approach thinking about the world. So Mm -hmm. it's been really useful. So was it ever going to be, uh, were you ever thinking about academia? Or did you always think about government policy? So I was definitely not going to be an academic. Mm-hmm. That was clear to me. And then I, at Defence, I did a couple of years in policy roles and I did a, I did a short stint um, deployed as the cil- civilian advisor to the commanding general in the Middle East. So this was, by then we're kind of 2009, I guess. Um, Australia, uh, so the Rudd government had just announced the withdrawal of Australian forces from Iraq. I'd worked on probably one of the most meaningful things I'd ever worked on, which was um, a program to bring out the 500 interpreters and their families who'd worked with Mm. our forces in Iraq and trying to get them safely out as we withdrew our forces. So so I'd just done all that and then I went over and I was... um, acting as a civilian advisor to the military for six months. And at the end of that, I came back and and I guess there are kind of two paths from there. Like I could have stayed at Defence and, and, you know, got deeper and deeper into that part of the world. Instead, I took a stint lecturing at UNSW at ADFA, um, which was like it's, I feel like it's probably like being an academic in an old school world. Like mm-hmm. it was a really, um, it was quite, it was, there was a lot less pressure than in other academic environments where I've been. There were, you know, really beautiful and supportive faculty, interesting people that I was working with um, 
And then I have my baby, uh, really great mat leave provisions. So again, really conscious of how privileged I am and how my Mm -hmm. PhD set me up to be in a job where this was prior to Mm -hmm. the really good government funded mat leave. Mm -hmm. So I was really lucky to have that mat leave. Um, But I realised in that time at ABFA that I don't have the stick-to-itness of finishing a thing Mm -hmm. if I don't have a kind of deadline. And I just... I couldn't do it. I wasn't, I'm not dedicated enough to that. I need someone to be like, you must do this thing. And no one was doing that. So, <laughs> so what do you think, um, what what did you bring from your PhD, uh, either the knowledge or the skills, to the job that you're in now? Because you said that it sort of has led you to where you are, but. Do but you, not in the most overt use, way. Yeah, do you use yeah. any of your research skills in your current role or any of those transferable skills? <laughs> I like a transferable skill. <laughs> I use, uh, so my boss teases me that I'm like the least policy person he knows because he says, you know, you're always really interested in kind of the operations of things and how things actually work. That was what my thesis was. I was like interested in what is the gap between how we say things work and how we describe what they do and what's mm-hmm. actually happening down here and how do you kind of use knowledge of what's happening down here to make things better. Mm. I use that every day. Yes, it sounds like a, yep. Okay. And how much did you publish from your thesis much? Not really. So I think uh, a couple of articles and and my and book. book. Yeah, yeah, that was it. So it was by thesis, not by publication. What does that mean? <laughs> this oh, is like how out um, of the world oh, sorry, that I You am. know when you, you write that that big fat volume yes. of 80,000 words yeah. <laughs> yeah, yep. um, that perhaps only you and your mum crack. Yes. Um, oh, and at least two reviewers. And at least so, two reviewers, <laughs> yes. That's um, what we're hoping. Yeah. Versus doing it by publication where these days. You have to have like days, a of five publications. You have five papers. Oh, wow. Published like, joining tied chapters. together with a few paragraphs. Oh, wow. Um, it is a more. That sounds harder work. Well, I guess it really depends. It I mean, kind of makes it, it makes it harder for the for the examiners to fail you. That sounds like harder work. <laughs> um, but I guess it means you you leave your PhD with, with publications. Yeah. yeah. So and then if you don't complete your PhD, you at least you have some publications. Yeah. Um, oh, that sounds quite humane, actually. <laughs> yeah. So no, it, sadly, it was my thesis. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a less common way of doing things now but um well a thesis make me feel no so, so yeah doing- <laughs> no, no, no 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 a thesis is definitely the most common way of doing it depends on where you are i think oh, in, health, yeah. in health um in health. depends on you yeah. very much a a, a thing yeah. yeah um but in in the humanities definitely i still, still think my thesis is is the yeah. main is the way yeah. people do yeah. it yeah okay yeah. yeah do you think that you would be where you are now if you didn't have a phd having a phd has been incredibly helpful for me um, in terms of establishing credibility in audiences where I would not always be viewed as credible. Uh, So in that respect, I think it's been really helpful. As I say, I think it really informed the way that I think about the world. Uh, Do you know what's making me uncomfortable about this question is I think the challenge for me in relation to PhDs is that I think about all the people who are excluded from them Mm. for all the reasons that we know to be true. Mm -hmm. So, like, I, you know, 
I made a decision to be quite upfront about how easy my ride was because I want to be really clear that I know that's not everyone's experience at all and that there are so many good and smart people with so many interesting things to say who don't get that Mm. opportunity and we need to think really seriously about the structures that lead us to that place. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, do I think, yeah, probably I would have been fine without a PhD because Mm. I come from a real position of privilege and, and, you know, so like the sad fact is that it would, but for other people I know it is their way of their way in and I think like that's kind of terrible as well. We need to find more ways in. (laughs) Yeah, so... um, I suppose in a world where um, uh, there's much more, the value of the bachelor degree is not as much as it used to be. Yeah. And and suddenly now that we're having careers where you have to have a master's in order to compete, mm-hmm. teaching, psychology, yeah. uh, a few of them that I can think it of. Is, yeah. It's funneling opportunities yeah. towards people who have resources. It's yeah. talking about the university as as. Uh, that the business of university to that's mm-hmm. that's the that's the core business and then there's the specialties the specialities mm-hmm. or the shouldn't even call it that but you know that that's I what do. I mean mm-hmm. is just the um, and and actually I had an easy ride in as well because I did I studied in the UK my undergraduate degree in Edinburgh and uh, I did a year at Edinburgh as well great <laughs> right university Edinburgh but anyway <laughs> Me too. um so and and that's a free undergraduate degree yes. because I'd been living there long enough to access free and then I came here and I did a free <laughs> PhD so it is it was I I experienced a similar um, easy ride although I had a baby halfway through so not so easy yeah. <laughs> you like, created that hurdle yeah. <laughs> literally yeah. I love that hurdle <laughs> it's so funny though because I was talking to a friend about about coming on this podcast and she was saying you know the thing Caroline is like you know you don't want to be like it's the system the system is the thing that we need to think about how we get it to be more inclusive mm-hmm. And how we get it to have more voices. And I was reading on Twitter, just don't read Twitter, but I was reading on Twitter just Mm -hmm. before I came on, you know, this tweet from this woman who was saying, like, February 2020, a fellow PhD student said, I looked up that fellowship that you won and I can see it's a diversity fellowship. And I just thought, like... Ah, right. So what are you trying yeah. to say then? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, so you're not really intelligent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. And I just think, you know, that if that is, and I know that that still exists, not still exists. And it's baffling that in 2020 people can still go, oh, you were given support because you're a minority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe because there are all the institutions in place that mean that we took everything away early. <laughs> yeah. And then slowly, yeah. yeah. So there's a whole thing there that I feel uncomfortable about. So I'm sorry. Anyway, no, you can no, all of enough. this from the podcast. <laughs> it does sort of lead us to the question then, from your own perspective, what is a PhD? Mm-hmm. Well, so from from my very personal perspective, a PhD for me was a wonderful, magical opportunity to spend some time thinking about the way the world works and Mm -hmm. kind of understanding it, turning it over and thinking about it in different worlds. Um, And then it was also like I think you had in your notes a passport. Like Mm -hmm. I think there is a passport quality to the PhD, which I find more problematic and more difficult. Um, Yeah. That. Yeah. So for some people, it is a sort of a stamp that yeah. allows them to a next level. Yeah. Um, but for some people, it's a transformative experience, a personal transformative experience rather than a, yeah. a ticket. Yeah. Good on those people. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so if you were talking to uh, graduates, 
uh, who are uh, contemplating a PhD, what 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 sort of advice do you give to those people who maybe ask you, should I do a PhD today when there's 11,000 people graduating with a PhD every year? Is mm. there room for me? What, what do you say? I ask people to think about why they want to do it and I try to encourage people to think about the good and the not good reasons to do it. And I think the not good reasons are the kind of sense of um, panic that people feel and the kind of one-upmanship of the thing. Oh, masters isn't enough anymore. I need to do a PhD. PhD. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's also a kind of um, some people kind of, anyway, so those are the not good reasons to do it. And then like I think about kind of what is it that you really want to learn and what you want to do and, you know, and then just the practical things because, you know, anyway. So and uh, what about kids who are finishing school now and her, who are, have all the pressures of life on their shoulders and their parents going, rah, 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 you must go to university. So what do you say to them? Oh, like no kid would ever ask me for my opinion on anything. That's <laughs> clear. They all kind of, they all know way more than me about all the things. Um I I don't know. I think I think I would say, you know, first work out what you're doing at uni, if you want to go to uni, what that means for you and then think about it. I mean, I really what I do say to people is uh I don't think academia is necessarily uh a easy pathway and you really really have to want it. And I look at the people I went through and I um, I went through with and I was looking at the Twitter feed today, a couple of them are protesting in the UK around casualisation of the workforce. We've all had our PhDs for 15 years, still not in tenured positions, mm-hmm. you know, so there are some real challenges there. But then I can see that they love the work that they do and so, you know, but you have to really, really want it if you mm-hmm. want to be an academic. And if you don't want to be an academic, then a PhD can be great as well, but mm-hmm. you want to think about what you're building when you do it. Mm-hmm. And so knowing everything what we've, that we've talked about today, would you do it again? Yeah, but like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Big believer in kind of you shouldn't have regrets. And I like, what could I regret? It was an amazing opportunity. Okay. But would you do it differently? Yeah, I would 100% do it differently. Mm-hmm. I would actually make a lot more time and space to realise all of the things that I completely excluded from my consideration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose it was a bit of a, um, because of the because it was really of the moment, <laughs> there wasn't a not great opportunity to sit back and think about every perspective because not only is it of the moment but you've got only a short amount of time mm. and, and, and you've, when you've only got three years to complete something, you've only got like months to plan it. Yes. And so if you had, you know, hindsight, Great, but we don't we don't have that. So bless, thank you. It would be, I could kind of see it's almost like I'm uh, doing a review for COVID at the moment, and and um, yeah. and I just feel like everything is being because yeah, it is of the moment rushed yes, out. It's been and, rushed out, and yes. and there's it's so interesting to to look at it from that perspective. And I imagine for you, it might have been quite not exactly the same, but quite similar in mm. that that you had you had a moment in time to to do something important. And so I can see how, um, yeah, that that hindsight would have been brilliant. But hey, yeah, you you put out a, a 
um, a lovely little book. $115 book. <laughs> <laughs> Get it on eBay. <laughs> Get on. Okay, so the last question that we've got is around myths, oh. which might be a, a nice way to finish with with you. Is what what have you heard? What myths do you hear, uh, or have you heard about being a PhD academic or studying, or, or that that you would like to kind of set the record straight on? Uh, so. Uh, uh, so my boss teases he's got a couple of PhDs in his leadership a c- team. Couple, couple, oh, <laughs> couple. Of I thought even he had a couple. Of no, 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 no. <laughs> like there's a couple of people with PhDs in his leadership team, and uh-huh. he he teases us about being the smartest people in the room. And I think that would be the myth, right? <laughs> the myth that the PhD is the thing that um, that signals exceptionalism. I think it's it signals something, but it's certainly not that. Yeah. That's that's actually you're not the first person to say that. Yeah, interestingly, yeah. I wouldn't have wouldn't yeah. be surprised. You're, you're an expert on this <laughs> thing. This, that's right. <laughs> this well, there's nothing like doing a PhD to make you feel really dumb. Actually, yeah. you suddenly realise all the things you don't know. But it's, I mean, that's the wonder, isn't yeah. it? Because then you're like, oh, I think I could find out about this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So maybe maybe postdoc. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. So that is all the questions that we have for you today. Is there anything that you wanted to add, though? Or? No, look, thanks so much for having me along. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. It's been a, an amazing story. The very last thing that we should end with is a huge thank you to all of the people who came and gave their time to be interviewed for this um, podcast series. It's, very generous. It was very generous of them and it was so fascinating. And uh, after every interview, I felt so inspired <laughs> to be a researcher and, and to use my PhD. So it was a very eye-opening experience and a, um, a, a really interesting experience. Yes, and we're really very grateful to yeah. every single one of them. But we're also especially grateful to Dr. Sharon Pittman for yeah, telling who us, gave us the, about the, grant. the inside story about the grant. Yes. yes, he gave us the inside story about the grant that we applied for and we got, which supported um, the production of this podcast. So thank you to Inspiring South Australia and to Sharon Uh, for your very generous um, support of our podcast. Thanks for listening to Career Sessions with Dr. Stephanie Champion and Dr. Tamara Agnew. If you like the show and want to know more, check out www.careersessions.com where you can send us your suggestions for future series and subscribe so you know when a new episode is posted. If you love it, tell all your friends and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks to our sponsor, Inspiring South Australia, for their generous support, and to our producer, Rory, at Podbooth. Join us next time when we talk careers with another leader in the field.